Welcome to the Optimistic Curmudgeon, where the best ideas win. I'm your host, Josh Herring. My guest today is Alex Kashuda. Alex is a cultural critic living in Romania, the host of the Subversive podcast, and a panelist at the European National Conservatism Conference in Brussels last March, and then also at the Miami NatCon 3 conference this past September. I heard Alex speak at NatCon 3, and I'm really looking forward to learning more about her ideas today. Alex, welcome to the Optimistic Curmudgeon. Thank you for having me, Josh. It's nice to be here. Yeah, I, I believe you are my first international guest on this show, which is so exciting. Oh, nice. That's lovely. Yeah, I'm uh, I, I'm a strange international guest. I'm very preoccupied with, with matters in your own country. So international by location, uh, very, uh, very national by interest. There we go. Uh, well, do uh, before we get into kind of the, the main stuff I want to talk about today, um, help our listeners know a little bit about you and your show. Um, I'd love to know how you got into podcasting, and I am still not entirely sure what the dissident right is. So anything you want to tell us about that cluster of topics, please feel sure, free. Sure, sure. Um, so I was more interested in the dissident right phenomenon before I decided to create a, a podcast about it. Um, I got onto Twitter, found what was interesting to me, and apparently that specific thing is now called the dissident right or the new right or the deep right or the, I don't know, there's there's many ways of, of describing kind of the same loose uh, association of people uh, and, and little Venn diagrams that overlap and some, some less so. Uh, so essentially the dissident right is... Um, is for me, I mean, I'm someone who came from, I don't know if your listeners are familiar with the, the IDW acronym, like, you know, the intellectual dark web, you know, the, the phenomenon around Jordan Peterson, you know, the um, the Weinstein brothers were also part of this, Eric Weinstein and Brett Weinstein. Um, a lot of kind of canceled people who were trying to reboot something called classical liberalism. Um, you know, this, uh, I think Dave Rubin was also associated with this concept of classical liberalism. Um, and at one point, uh, you know, there are many podcasts produced, many, many videos produced, many conversations started. There were, there were you know, even, even uh, stadiums were selling out, you know, in conversations between Jordan Peterson and Douglas Murray and, you know, people like this. Um, Sam Harris was slightly involved in this for, for a hot minute at one point. So there are all these kind of intellectual conversations going on and everyone essentially there, um, was trying to uh, revive this idea of the classical liberal, you know, classical liberalism. Um, and some people, myself included, were trying to figure out, okay, what exactly is this classical liberalism? What would it look like if it worked? And going down the rabbit hole of classical liberalism, we started to observe some um, some holes in the narrative, some some issues with the with the whole concept of classical liberalism, and when you start poking holes in that, essentially the place where you end up is typically the dissident right in different huh. formats. I think it's mostly. I mean, I would say Twitter is a huge community of this. There's a lot of um, discourse happening on Twitter about these subjects. Uh, but there's also a, a big kind of video essay type community on YouTube that was kind of an older generation of that. So this would include um, YouTubers like the Distributists, like Aaron McIntyre in a way as well, um, Academic Agent, you know, people who have been on YouTube for the last four, five, six years and been making 
um, videos talking about partly about, you know, thinkers like, let's say, Alistair McIntyre, people who are more religiously inclined, and also the phenomenon called neo-reaction or NRX, which is more the work of Curtis Yarvin and the British philosopher called Nick Land. Um, and they've essentially been writing um, little essays about the works of these guys. They're essentially bloggers. They've, they've written on the internet for a long time, maybe about 10 years ago, kind of yeah. as a timeline. Uh, a lot of people were reading them in secret 10 years ago, and now a lot of people, a lot more people are reading them openly. And you can see Curtis Yarvin being invited on different platforms and, and things like that. So this is kind of the the wider um, dissident right post-liberal space where um, people have kind of moved past classical liberalism in the sense that, okay, you know, the idea is not that we just need to revive this thing that really works and, you know, we, it's proven to work. It's that this thing that, um, you know, classical liberalism is essentially a intermediary form of this thing that's kind of decaying into, into the thing that we have now. So into, you know, whatever neoliberal... Um, I don't know. I don't know exactly what to describe the current system. You know, some people call it the the cathedral, or uh, you know, there there are many ways, many titles for it. But um, essentially, yeah, we just see it as an intermediary step that you kind of have to go through on the path. You know, there's it's not a stable um, system. That's really interesting. I'm trying to think of like where where exactly to go as far as I like come to conceptualize that. When I think of classical liberalism, um, I'm thinking more of the um, academic formation. I mean, I had a decent amount of professors who would call themselves classical liberals. Uh, I work for a, 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 a businessman named Bob Luddy who would definitely call himself a classical liberal. He would drop Adam Smith and Ludwig von Mises and Friedrich Hayek as very positive terms. Um, my conception of classical liberalism is sort of a, um, a broad project coming out of the Enlightenment that we should have a basically rational system of national and international laws that, and instead of having warfare, we have commerce, and instead of conflict, we should have diplomacy, and that really classical liberalism was sort of the matrix of both the 19th and most of the 20th century. But at least the problem I have with at least my understanding of classical liberalism is that it presumes that the most important questions have to remain in the personal space, and those really have no those, those have no home in the in the public sphere, as the classical liberalism lends itself towards a pluralistic community that is we might have radically different ideas about what ultimately human life is for and human nature is bound by but we should all be able to meet together at Walmart and buy cheap goods is sort of the idea. Um, and I, I, I always, uh, I, I don't know that I would ever put myself intentionally on something called the dissident right, but I definitely have felt very frustrated with the, the unwillingness for the people that I know who champion classical liberalism today. They're not willing at all to realize that their highest goods do depend on some, philosophical assumption of what everything exists for. They don't recognize teleology. They don't recognize uh, anything that is truly rooted in nature that would assert a, a chain of values that we use to act. Instead, they would subordinate everything to the goods of the market. And as soon as you ask a, a true classical liberal why we, usually I, they, they will admit that we have human rights, but they can't explain why we have human rights or why 
we have certain rights and not others. And it seems to open itself up to being co-opted by people who want to replace what Jefferson, whatever Jefferson intended by life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness with a whole string of things that I'm confident no one thinks Jefferson actually intended. But it's this huge spreadable system. Uh, is that is that kind of along the lines of what you're describing, or is that completely off and yeah. left? Yeah, no, no. I think that's that's a that's a major criticism of of, of liberalism. I think you articulated very well. Um, I think you know the, the the main aspect here is that you know I've I used to be a libertarian as well. I I'm very um, kind of familiar and also. Um, I understand why these arguments exist and 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 they're they're great in in some in some ways you know on a paper napkin the mathematics of libertarian economics you know Austrian economics work perfectly but superimposed with human nature uh, they it starts to break down um, just just because one one thing just that history has taught us that is that power is a constant and libertarians just say that power is evil so you're just kind of tr- ignoring a constant in your in your napkin mathematics and your mathematics makes sense obviously if you just keep this constant at bay um and obviously in a in a system where you know power doesn't matter uh libertarian economics is perfect it really does work the reality is that we were, we live in a world where humans interact with each other and power is extremely important um and the problem is if you decide you know i'm just going to follow the nap but the person next to you says, no, the NAP is not for me. Guess what happens? <laughs> you get overpowered by someone who is willing to rule over you, who is willing to impose their morality, uh, who believes they have the right to rule over you. And guess what's happened in the last 10 years, the last 20 years, 50 years, depending on how, how far you want to go back. Um, a very virulent form of morality has been imposed under the guise of progress, under the guise of mm-hmm. common sense um, onto everyone. And it is very hard to fight because it's not even, you know, Protestantism versus Catholicism, you know, my book against your book, you know, little little details that we're fighting over. No, this is something that asserts itself mm-hmm. as the common sense. This is the right side of history. Um, and it's not even, you know, you can't even say, OK, you know, my my church believes different. Uh, it's it's very insidious. And that's why I think the right has had a very like huge problems in actually opposing these things, because to a lot of people on the right, you know, just we, you know, the, the normie conservatives in the in the lingo of the of the dissident right, um, these values are intrinsic as well. I mean, they they also believe in progress. They also believe that there is a right side of history. They also believe that you know, I don't know, the Second World War is this is the stage where where all human conflicts can be explained. It's the ultimate metaphor of good versus evil. And in any situation, you just need to figure out who are the Nazis, who are the Jews. That's kind of the, the basic thing. Uh, but they essentially just decide, oh, you know, we're d- we're just gonna want to slow it down. You know, we want to slow progress down. And the problem is if you essentially agree with your so-called enemy but you just want to you know take it down a notch don't go too fast you're gonna lose every time every roll of the dice you're gonna lose because they believe in these in these virtues much much harder that's why the argument like oh you know the democrats are the real racists like the democrats used to be you know the the actual kkk in the i don't know 1800s like who cares (laughs) at the moment the, the the democrats are the ones who have this totalizing moral vision that you mm. kind of share, but you just want to, you know, you want to ch- have a more chill version of it and just go a bit slower. 
that's a losing proposition every time. So, um, yeah, I don't know. That's that's just one tangent of it. But like I said, I think your your criticism is is one of the one of the things that the dissident right also notices, uh, and uh, and you know the the problems with this um, "don't tread on me" libertarianism, which has been a big core of the of the right wing for a long time, mm-hmm. to saying, okay, uh, we just want to be left alone. Well, the world as it is, with people in it, the way they are does not work that way. You cannot be left alone. There has to be a, a moral framework that society bases itself upon, even just for coordination among people. You know, it's like if, if we have like a Tower of Babel of, you know, 5,000 different moral systems, um, you cannot do business. You cannot even have your Austrian economics, uh, you know, because at, the, at one point, your moral system is not just going to be about, you know, what do you want to eat for dinner? It's going to be about real preferences that act in the world, act with business partners, mm-hmm. act, you know, if someone believes that it's right to lie to people who are not of their own religion, how are you going to be libertarian in that context? Or are you just going oh. to be, so it's, there's, there's a lot of things like that. Like, um, I think libertarianism kind of leaves a lot of these complications at the door and says, okay, you know, this, this would be ideal if everyone was like me. Well, people aren't like you. This is not surprisingly very um, appealing to autistic people. Libertarianism. It's just like very straight lined. Oh, you know, sure. it's a so oh. it's yeah. You know, you know what I mean. But I mean, the dissident rights, you know, probably half autistic, um, which is wonderful. It's uh, it's it's part That's of its charm. Totally yeah, I don't know if this makes sense, but yeah, this is this is another aspect that we think about. Well, it, it makes sense, I guess, on. on- Two comments I want to make on that, and then we should we need to get to some of your uh, your NatCon talks because uh, I, I don't want to diverge uh, away from that too far because I really want to uh, find out more about those. Uh, but I do think it's really interesting to think about a a politic uh, a political movement or a a kind of politics that is forming. Uh, I think it's it's relatively easy to look back in history and you can see a moment or an era. You can look at the Enlightenment as a singular moment or movement because we have the space of 300 years to look back on that and see how the salons led to the formation of certain conversations, which then the printing press enabled to be spread beyond the confines of the people gathering in Madame du Pompadour, whoever's, whoever's hosting the salon. It's probably not her. It's probably a different Madame hosting the salon. But uh, we can look at that and see it as a singular moment. But in the midst of it, I'm thinking of a uh, class I took in college on the French Revolution where we spent a couple weeks just reading uh, a bunch of articles that were all in circulation in Paris in a given week that the professor had collected. And they were all over the map. There was not a singular uh, issue or principle that seemed to, uh, Robespierre was not yet just kind of systematizing things. It, it, it read like a convoluted mess. They were all sort of united in indicting the Anshan regime but I think if I was alive in that moment, it would have sounded something closer to what you're describing, where there's a bunch of people who all have this insight that something something's wrong and the status quo, just keeping the status quo or just doing what we've always done isn't sufficient. So I think like being in the kind of exploring that as a developing politic is is just really, really interesting. The other thing I thought was intriguing what you were describing that sense of a, a common morality that we need reminds me of C.S. Lewis's arguments uh, in The Abolition of Man about a, a great tradition. He borrowed that Chinese term, the Tao, to name the great tradition. But we need that common tradition that uh, where we, we and, and some of those should be just basic 
assumptions that we can make. We should be able to assume honesty and integrity in business dealings. We should be able to assume the value of children and the value of the aged. The, we should be able to assume the goods of hearth and home and seeking wisdom and education and so on. And But in the collapse of that, uh, Lewis goes on to make all kinds of really interesting arguments about the way uh, people will, if you say you reject that tradition, other people step in as these innovators who will try to change human nature and they'll bring up new laws and new habits. And in doing that, it's weird. You, you think you change one master for freedom, but in reality, you change a known tradition for an unknown tradition, but that unknown tradition is the hands of people who do not have humanity's best interest at heart. They have their own interest at, at heart. So you've really traded this tradition for some unknown cabal in the, in, in the, and, and the technological ability also to, to actually make real change comes into that story as well. Uh, so I think one of the most important things that we can really contemplate or, or move towards is recovering that common tradition, that common morality. How we get there, I don't know, but I think it's a, it's a, it's a very important uh, thought. Any last thoughts you want to say about any of uh, that with uh, your show, The Dissident Ride, anything we've been talking about before we move on to uh, your talks? Yeah, I mean, I think you you make a really, you know, good overarching point that this is kind of the, you know, divergent phase of, of this design project that is, uh, you know, imagining the new regime or imagining the next step. Um, you know, we've kind of almost gone through the what is it five stages of grief you know we've we've been in denial with the idw then we moved you know slower we're kind of in the anger phase now maybe with the dissident right uh, there are many things being you know splattered against the wall we're observing what sticks you know there are many post-its in the in the great hall of, of the dissident right and whatever other movements there are so you know a convergent phase will follow, like in any design project where, you know, it is time to take the post-its off the wall because we've decided, okay, this is this is where they cluster mostly and this is the direction we have to go, go towards. One thing that it seems to be converging towards is that it is inevitable that we will have to have a an external value framework that mm -hmm. is very probably transcendent in one way or another um, and that is fixed and inerrant in one way or another, because a big problem with, with what we have with liberalism and it's essentially, you know, just just open mindedness to subversion is the fact that there is not even not even like a 10 point plan that is fixed. It's all it's all a constant churning, constant revolution. Uh, and that's kind of that's the virtue in it, or at least that, that's what the system sees as a virtue. It's like this idea that you you constantly update, you constantly change, which is a good thing in some respects. Like if you look at a technological product, it's probably good to have R&D and change. But with things like human nature and um, how we interact with each other, I think that the trade-offs of, of losing a moral system, like that land, that moral language, like you described, that you know that we use for trade, for relationships, for all the things that make make us human. You know, we're not evolving from year to year. Whatever the progressives might try to tell you, you know, we're we're pretty much the same type I'm, of. I'm still waiting for my wings. I've always wanted to evolve wings. I, I still well, you might just get it, get them in our transhuman future. You know, I'm sure there's there's some someone in the lab is is cooking up some wings for you. Um, <laughs> So uh, I think that's you know I think we're 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 trading much more we're losing much more than than we're gaining with this idea that you know um, the right side of history is just a permanent revolution which is essentially what it's what's baked into the cake of of our current regime. 
Well, let's let's stay on that regime idea for just a moment, because um, at uh, at the end of your, so I went back uh, yesterday and listened to your uh, NatCon speech in Brussels, and then again, and the one you did in Miami. Um, and I want to go back. I think this is from the one at the end of your speech in Brussels. Uh, you said at the end of your speech that every regime is a theocracy, and you the kind of the running theme at your conclusion was that value neutrality is a myth. Could you kind of expand and explain those ideas? Um, I, I suspect most of our listeners, uh, if they've thought about it, they would generally affirm a value-neutral government, and they would think that's probably a good thing. So help us see where where that really is a myth. I think a value-neutral government, it seems to me in, in the abstract, you know, just looking at it cold, is a good thing. Is it possible to have a value-neutral government? I don't think so. Has there ever been a value-neutral government in a society of humans? No, there has not. So I think just from a realistic perspective, like I said, you know, moving from the napkin into into 3D human interactions, um, every regime has had value a value hierarchy. Um, the one that we have right now is just covert. It doesn't see itself as a 10 point plan. It's just it sees itself as common sense. You know, the idea that, um, you know, every every person is um, uh, an, a kind of this, this atomized individual that has these desires that are spring forth unassisted from inside inside themselves, and this is the most important north star that you need to follow to just figure out who you are, who you really are. You know what you love to do, what your sexuality is, how to be authentic in the world. You know how to, you know just uh, and this this like I said, this comes from this mysterious place, and this is kind of the kind of the, the common sense that's presented in almost every form of media. This has essentially been streaming in hot from every direction for at least since the boomers, maybe, you know, depending on who you ask, even, even much, much earlier from, from John Stuart Mill, who was, who was speaking about freeing ourselves from, from the unchosen bonds and just kind of freeing this, this individual to, to um, pursue their authentic desires. Authentic desires. That's such a great phrase. The, uh, uh, that that reminds me of. Uh, uh, do, do you have you read Charles Taylor? Do you know him? I've uh, Sources of the Self. I've read uh, a while ago. Yeah. Uh, I, I've read most of his uh, tome, A Secular Age, and the his discussion in there of expressive individualism is just really, really interesting. And the idea that uh, I, I think you're right that it seems to come at us from every source of media and into that. And really be, and it's it's certainly been espoused in political speeches. Uh, certainly President Biden and both President Biden and President Trump had some kind of version of that that they were um, they were espousing. But the the idea that you uh, you create yourself and you express yourself through your actions, and there really should not be restraints on your self-expression. And there's there seems to be a negation of of nature in that that there's. It's not even that you have a nature and you express that nature through your actions, but rather, at least uh, in Taylor's argument, it's more that uh, you're you're creating your own nature through those expressions. And so anything you do that expresses yourself should inherently be affirmed. Yeah, because it's 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 an act of originality that just uh, needs to be cherished, and that's that's essentially what we live for for that moment of of uniqueness that just you know comes out of nothing, and it's just you know the the thing that makes you you. It's a uh, yeah, strange strange bit of uh, of modern mythology. Uh, definitely, and 
uh, in one of your, I think this was still that same speech, you talked about how both the right and the left practice the worship of pure autonomy. Is that the same thing or did you mean something yeah. a little bit different? That. No, that's that's essentially what I meant. It's the idea that um, you know the the the, the left wing has the idea that uh, you know autonomy is um, you know maybe sexual self expression and and all these things. And on the on the right side of the of the spectrum, you have people who say, okay, we we believe in traditional lifestyles and things like that. But then on the other hand, you know the actual policies implemented by the right wing have been mostly the, the most successful policies have been libertarian in nature where, you know, you abolish this and you abolish that. Uh, and the, the problem with that is that, you know, these are essentially autonomy directed ideas. You know, it's like, Oh, you can, you can be a traditionalist in your own, in your own four walls. Even if everyone else is not a traditionalist around you, you know, you can get married, you can have children at, you know, 21, no one's stopping you. But who are you gonna marry? You know, like the, the erosion of these of these uh, institutions has been has been done. You know, with essentially the libertarians have been handmaidens of this this process, and now this is actually you know essentially you know lubricating the way for the left wing to introduce all of these policies that essentially save people from the the problems that happened by the erosion of these institutions like oh you know we have a lot of um you know unwed mothers we have a lot of people we need a bigger safety net because these people are in actual problems you know or uh, drug um you know liberalization okay libertarians love drug liberalization but the problem is the people in the underclass who are actually you know devastated by drugs you know what happens next we need a bigger safety net. We need, you know, needle exchange. We need all of these social programs to come in and and help these people, save them from themselves, save them from, you know. So, like I said, you know, just just the fact that in the last 50 years, it's all been libertarians dismantling little bits of, you know, these traditional structures and then having uh, a bigger and bigger state. And everyone's surprised, why is the state so big? Why is the state so big? Because people don't like, you know, having, you know, unwed mothers, children die in the streets because of whatever new social ill has been created by sure. the dereliction of, a, of an older institution because, you know, those are unchosen bonds. We don't want anyone to be obligated to be doing all this type of stuff. So I don't know. That's that's one <laughs> what direction this takes. Well, that I, That's... That focus on kind of the pairing between libertarian policies and sort of then state expansion is really intriguing. That on the one hand, you could have sort of a limited government, Reaganomics, uh, let, let's take this back from the government and, and just cut it out. And but then not but then without a strong without strong social institutions, that then creates different problems than necessitating a bigger state response to deal with those problems. Yeah, and the thing is, you know, it, it does help the the market as well, and that's kind of the the kind of the po the pro situation for libertarians because a lot of these functions that used to be fulfilled by the family or by smaller communities are now being swept up into the into the larger market. You know, producing GDP, making everyone happy, making everyone a mint. Um, and but the problem is that you know the the state and the market grow together in these things. You know, like for example, everyone's moving out to get you know the jobs. You know, not all jobs in your are in your hometowns as a libertarian. You need to move. You need to move away. You know, the the real estate guy. Uh, you move into a single person apartment. Okay, real estate guy gets his check. You make whatever extra GDP at your your better paying job. You know, you do extra value added things. So essentially, you know, every everyone benefits. 
But the problem is the institution that used to, you know, you used to have your family close, used to have, you know, mutual cooperation. Like if, if you had a problem, uh, for example, if you became an alcoholic or you got addicted to drugs, now you're far away from your family. They maybe don't know about your problems. You know, if they were closer, they would, would have known, maybe given you some, some form, direct form of help, taking you in, things like that. Now you might even end up homeless and then you're kind of a warden of the state. The next step, you know, it's like that distance where, you know, it's, it's, you've kind of cut yourself off, you know, as a revealed preference, you know, you wanted to do this because a lot of people just, you know, want to be independent. They want to work separately, leaving, sure. you know, your family home is some is a rite of passage for a reason because it's fun. You know, you, you really do want to do that, you know, have, have that personal fulfillment in, in the wider world. And I get that. But at the same time, a lot like the, the lost dimensions here are not accounted for. There is no tally of all the, these like, like I described in that speech is like these intangible commons, mm -hmm. you know, like that network that you separate yourself from that had a value. It had an intrinsic value. It might not be something that you can calculate, you know, instantly, mm -hmm. but you know, it's, you know, having people care about you close is important. You know, I think it's, yeah, and that that the kind of movement you're describing, which of course is that's and that that's a that's a cherished American right that we have the freedom of movement in, in this country, uh, but it does I think on the one hand, it's a huge problem of uh, the phrase I've heard for this is brain drain as the the brightest brightest of a small town or even a, another country are relocating to places where they can make more money which leads to this, a dearth of people in that small town. But it's also happening at the time we've got in the United States, particularly we've got a shrinking, I don't like the word decay here, but maybe a shrinking understanding of like the role that churches have traditionally played in people's lives. I mean, like aside from the theological role of a church community and the salvation that churches proclaim and all that, there's also a social good in terms of a, a uh, free place to meet people and form substantive relationships and uh, to help others and be helped by them and uh, to re replace some of those inherent family connections. But we're living in a moment in the United States where church attendance is down and I don't have any stats to back this up. This is mostly from teaching in a, in a non-Christian school. But the sense I get from students is that they are they have they they are not raised to think that spiritual communities matter. And so if that goes on for enough generations, you get well, the, there is a sort of replacement and it's it's therapy. It's you can you can have the sort of person who you can pour your heart out to and you pay that person by the hour. So the market does have a solution for that, but it's not nearly as as helpful or as uh, soul sustaining as the inherent kind of organic community of a church that could be that can be a place where people who've moved to a big city or they're far away from home they can form those friendships and natural connections that help them uh, to really overcome some of those negative habits like drug or alcohol abuse or sex abuse or whatever is going on. But instead, we we we're sort of that that too is part of this this overall institutional decline. Uh, to some extent. Yeah, I mean, it's therapy, but, you know, once you stop paying, uh, you're you're cut off from, from your best friend. Um, and it's also work. 
I mean, I don't know if you're familiar with like all these kind of movements, you know, you get, get like the flatter hierarchies and this the bring yourself, bring your whole self to work movement, uh, where it's it's kind of they're kind of trying to create these semi familial bonds at the work, but it's all kind of imposed. And there's also this idea that you know you want to be very emotionally open with your work colleagues, which essentially just means like a, a whole lot of conflict and a whole lot of work. Uh, additionally, like, you know, so-called emotional labor that you have to perform at work to, oh yeah, to, to still work with these people who are also supposed to be your kind of your semi-family and your friends. It's a lot, <laughs> I have to say. So yeah, I mean, I've got a little bit of experience with this and it's just like, it's it turns into, it turns the workplace into this kind of, you know, eunuchs at the Ottoman court, you know, whisper campaigns and everyone's just in everyone's business. And yeah, it's, it's, it's very strange. So I don't know, but yeah, this is another replacement for stuff that used to just come a little bit more organically. Sure. Let's go back to a phrase you mentioned a moment ago, uh, the, the, the tragedy of our, our commons. That was the title of your most recent NatCon speech. Uh, run us through kind of your view of, of what, the, what these commons are and what's the tragedy of them. Yeah, so essentially the easiest way to understand like this concept of the commons, I mean, the, the, the concept comes from from economics and there's this example in economics that's called the, the tragedy of the commons. And it's just an, an example of, you know, it uses the example of, of commons in, in the UK that just means pasture land. Uh, and there are some common pastures that that people tend to tend to use and no one's really in charge of them. So everyone brings their livestock there and it gets overgrazed quite quickly. And the tragedy of the commons is the fact that if if you don't have um, a governance system over an asset that is shared in common by, you know, however many people, that asset's going to be, you know, over overused and it's going to be run into the ground. Um, and essentially, I've noticed that there are many commons like this, and I call them intangible commons because they're not pasture land. They're not like one big block of whatever cheese that everyone's eating from. It's just a, it's just something that you know that has a lot of utility, um, but is intangible. So, like I said, for example, um, you know, the the food commons are something that that is important, like that. Like, you know, what is a default setting in society? That's mm. essentially pretty much what the commons dictate. It's like if you go out to the store, what is the first thing you see? Is this a thing that is going to add you nutrition and is going to make your life better, or is it a thing that's going to take from you? Is going to you know, reduce your quality of life? Um, you know, from the libertarian perspective, it's like, you know, it's, it's whatever sells and whatever sells, unfortunately, is not necessarily what gives you most nutrition or gives you the best, you know, bang for your buck in terms of your actual life. It's whatever tickles your limbic system the most, you know, it's going to be the Snickers bar. It's going to be whatever is, I don't know, more palatable. Like it's, it's all High the corn, just corn all syrup, the you know, seed oils, all this type of stuff that is cheap to make and, and delicious to eat. And, you know, unfortunately, what is delicious to eat is not necessarily what is good for us. Um, obviously, it's very paternalistic, but this is just one perspective on it. And I'm not in saying, okay, we're not going to have to, you know, make all these things illegal. I'm just saying that if we want to be conservative about the world around us, we need to take these spaces into consideration. We need to see mm. what the default setting is for society uh, and how this, you know, makes things worse. Uh, I mean, another example that I use in the speech as well is the relationship comments, you know, how easy is it to make a friend, to keep a friend? You know, what's the default setting there? How easy is it to get married? You know, do the people around you um, see marriage as something valuable in itself? Do they aspire to marry? You know, that's very important. That's a comment. You know, my my possibility to get married 
is very much tied to the attitudes that other people around me have been, the marriage, the dateable pool for me, are they interested in getting married? Are they just interested in like short, casual flings? You know, when do they want to get married? Is that still within my timeline of having children? Are children a part of this? You know, so because everyone is now the generator of their own meaning, of their own value structure, um, it's very hard to make connections like this that are based on common values. Um, you know, like in, in the big city, you really can't make any assumptions about the values of someone you just met, you know. And then the, another, another problem that's added to, this pro, to the, the commons issue is that most people don't really meet in, in person anymore. So a big part of the, the current commons of relationships is application dating. So app dating, you're on these apps and, you know, <laughs> the commons is... If you're photogenic enough, uh, you know, you're going to be going on some dates. You know, if you're a woman, you're probably going to try to go on a date with the most interesting and attractive guy that likes your photo and wants to go on a date with you. And unfortunately, just the way gender relations work is that that guy's probably gone on his sixth date this week. He's not interested in anything serious because he's got all the options in the world. Uh, and then you're all confused because you've been going on a million dates and no one really wants to have a second date or wants to see you again or things like that. It's just a, it's just a, a really strange um, arrangement and it's very counterintuitive to how mm -hmm. people used to date just, just maybe five, six, seven years ago where you just, you know, meet someone at work or, you know, for lunch or at the library or at the church or something like that. And now everyone is on their phone. You know, I could almost feel it. It was, it was a, a week, like maybe seven or eight years ago where, it just changed from, you know, you went to a bar with your girlfriends and someone would chat you up and say, oh, you're looking wonderful tonight, to no one talks to you anymore. Mm. Might also be me aging. I'm not saying that that's not a factor, but it's, you know, it, it did feel like everyone sure. was on their phone. So it's, uh. I don't know, it's, it's a strange feeling. And it, it is, it has been um, fact-checked by friends of mine, younger and older. <laughs> so it's a, it's, a, it's a strange new development, which is part of these commons, you know, the default setting. And if we as conservatives are just looking at, you know, don't tread on me, you want, you want to keep your guns, okay, I understand. But these things that actually affect if people get married, if there are children, how they're raised, where they're raised, are extremely important. And I don't see anyone thinking about this at this level of abstraction at all. Mm. I think that's a, you're raising some really important points. Uh, it reminds me, I have a former student of mine who's now a uh, student at uh, University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and he's the chief technology officer for a, uh, a dating app. And we, we got together uh, this week and he was telling me all about it. And I'm curious about your, your thoughts. If this, if this is some way to address that problem, particularly in the relationship commons, uh, their app's approach is to um, basically it's they have a mechanism by which you you let the app access your address book and then you assign a friend who will pick you a blind date and so it's sort of a it's a their their goal is light happy get togethers they're not at all trying to like set up something super serious but it's more like a way to have uh so the way so your friend the friend would get a couple of suggestions and then the friend says, oh, yeah, this person would be a really good date for my friend or nope, nope, that's not a good fit at all. Does that uh, does introducing the element of a friend in there to who will sort of like check the relationship or vet that they also have it set up where like they initially the initial date is a double date. 
So it's it's more about getting to know each other than anything else. Which I just thought was really interesting. It it seemed like a healthier internet dating model than anything else I'd heard of. What are your what are your thoughts on that? I think it it could work. It does seem to me like it puts quite a lot of uh, pressure on the friend. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> it depends on how cooperative your friend is, and how you know if they're have to, they have to vet like three or four options for you and then present them. It feels like are they are they paying the friend? <laughs> That's my question. <laughs> I mean, no, just I just looking. So. I don't think there's yeah. Involved in I mean, only helpful friends need apply. <laughs> I I mean, that's that's uh, you know, depending on how easy it is to you know go through the steps, you know, the the user experience as it's called in in, in tech circles, it it might be it might be a really uh, great thing to to add into the mix, you know. Um, hopefully, you know, people have enough friends to recommend because that's another, you know, element of the relationship commons that's kind of breaking down. A lot of acquaintances, few friends, because, you know, friendship relationships require quite a lot of friction that a lot of people haven't, haven't really, you know, either been used to or just haven't engaged with in the last few years. It's just like, you know, it's there, there, there are conflicts and the idea that, you know, the next friend or the next connection or, you know, even even just the internet in general gives you that this kind of warm, fuzzy feeling. If you're watching a YouTube video, you know, the creator is connecting with you saying, oh, my friends, I love you. You know, you kind of have this idea that you're kind of floating in friendship. And if there's some friction with a friend, you can just kind of drop it, like whatever, you know, I can, I can always get a new friend. And it like the idea of engaging in the hardness of relationships seems to be kind of going out of favor a little bit. Um, and yeah, this obviously applies to romantic relationships as well, because there's always the illusion that, you know, you know, they're, they're, you can be swiping through eligible people until the cows come home. Yeah. So yeah, it's a, it's a, it's another dimension to this whole thing. It's uh, yeah. Hope, I mean, I'm, I'm hopeful for the app. I think this, you know, it's one of those things you really can't tell what's going to work until you, you know, you smash it against the wall and see if it sticks. It sure. could be, and it could work in some communities as well. Like depends on the community, how, you know, a bit more tight knit community I can imagine it working. Um, in your, uh, I think this was back to the March speech, you made a really interesting claim about uh, falling birth rates indicate the failure of the liberal order. Can you walk us through the the reasoning behind that? Why does a, a global failing birth rate really mean that the status quo has failed us on a civilizational level? Of course. I mean, I feel like it's it's downstream from the same metaphor where, you know, you, you get to, to set your own meaning and... The problem is if you get to set your own meaning, you kind of default to the limbic reaction, to the instinctive, to the short-term reaction, where you're just kind of plugged into what feels good in the moment. And having kids doesn't feel good in the moment. <laughs> it really doesn't. You know, there are many moments that really don't feel good at all. <laughs> so uh, it's it's one of those things where the payoff um, is late, uh, it it is complex. It is baked into feelings that you can't even simulate before you have the children, before you go through the through the actual action of it. So it's um it's it's one of those things where you know before um you know in, in more traditional structures, children had a certain position. You know it was the thing you did. You know your your heirs. You know they they take they pass on your name. They pass on your property in a certain sense. If you want to take a materialist lens on this, um, they they pass on your values. They pass on your heritage. You know there's there's a lot of things that um, that are just you know 
passed on through children. So they, they occupy a really important uh, place in, in traditional uh, value hierarchies. Once you dispense with that, you have a, you know, what's in it for me type of relationship to the present moment, you know, where the, the purpose of life is to be authentic, you know, to make what, what makes you happy, you know, what, what are children part of that? Maybe for some people who are, you know, very, you know, they really like the idea of having children. They had a good experience with their own parents. But, you know, a, a lot of people from my generation are the children of highly liberated boomers who are went through like six divorces and, you know, a lot of turmoil, a lot of, you know, maybe, I don't know, boyfriends and stuff going, you know, passing through the house, you know, a lot of, a lot of problems that are related to the concept of family. So it wouldn't be surprising to me if a lot of people just said, okay, you know, this isn't, this isn't appealing to me. This doesn't make me happy. I don't have any sort of religion or tradition to plug into to say, okay, why is this good in and of itself? So, you know, what's in it for me? So I, a lot of people are just saying there's nothing in it for me. Um, and there's also the problem of, um, you know, the, the things that actually, um, you know, create a, a stable home environment have gotten very expensive, like, you know, housing, schooling, you know, there's also kind of a, a material angle on this. And also just keeping up with the Joneses is very expensive nowadays. Like, have you seen what these kids are wearing? Have you seen what they're playing with? You know, just, it's really, really hard. Have you seen the schools that they want to go to? You know, all of these amazing schools that the, that the internet tells them that they have to go to. It's an it's a initiation right that they have to go to an Ivy League school that costs, I don't know, $250,000 to go to. Like, you know, all of these things, they, they build up and they snowball. And it doesn't surprise me that some people are intimidated by even the, the, the sheer idea of, of, of going down this road. So all of that is happening inside of a civilization that has said uh, that we don't have ultimate values. And then um, I think as the uh, it seems to me that the the piece that I heard in your talks that was kind of the most hopeful was really that idea that every if every regime is a theocracy, if our current theocracy is worshiping the idea of individual autonomy, um, hope for our civilization means we need a different theocratic movement in some way. Um, what is, is that accurate or where, where what, what would a healthier civilization look like that does not worship at the altar of individual autonomy? I mean, if we want it, if we don't want it, that civilization is going to, to follow. I mean, I think the question is just how much are we going to lose and how much pain is going to be involved in, in the decline of this one. I really do hope that the decline is going to be, you know, slow and managed and not, you know, not going to explode in many, in many terrible ways, which, you know, has happened in, in some other empires and regimes. Um, but what comes next? Like, for example, Amish country population growth is exploding. Like they're expected to, I can't remember exactly, but to to represent, I don't know, twenty or thirty percent of the U.S. population in X amount of time. I don't have this stat, but it was it was an impressive stat. Just just imagine, just extrapolating from current growth rates, um, it's 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 incredible. And um, so these things are going to happen, and they're going to happen in communities that have that um, you know external values backbone, um, you know, it, 
transcendent, fixed in many ways. Uh, and that allows them, like I said, to coordinate amongst each other and actually, you know, get the, the business of civilization on its way, um, which is something that unfortunately we've lost. And um, it, it used to be just a, a given in, in, you know, Western societies. I mean, I, I moved to, to, to London, to, to the UK to, I don't know, in, enjoy that aspect of civilization. But what I found there was really, really disheartening. And that's kind of a big a factor in, in my conversion to the dissident right. It's just looking for answers and what exactly is going wrong with these people? Don't they see what they have? You know, I mean, I, I, I'm come from Romania. I lived in Eastern Europe most of my life. And then, you know, I moved to the, to this wonderful Western country with so much opportunity. And these people were just burning their civilization to, to ashes, just right in front of everyone and still apologizing for it. And it's just, I don't know, it's just really, really disheartening to see. Uh, I do hope, you know, people um, wake up a little bit in, in the, in the coming years and, and see what's, what's going on. Well, there, there certainly is a uh, hope still does remain. I think, I mean, I think there are, it's, it's small. I, I think there's uh, I was talking to somebody, uh, I did an episode with somebody last week where uh, not to co-opt a biblical image, because that obviously uh, Western civilization is not the kingdom of heaven. I just want to make sure we don't accidentally conflate those two. That's another problem uh, in, in, in our past. But um, uh, there is something there. I, I think there's a, there's a hopeful image in the idea of Israel. There being an Israel inside of Israel. There always being a remnant people. And maybe even the image of the kingdom of heaven growing like a mustard seed become the greatest of all trees or yeast that is leavening the whole loaf. Uh, I think there are, there are pockets of whether it's uh, I, I teach at a school called Thales Academy. We're a part of the classical renewal movement. I like to think we are part of that group that is kind of uh, holding the line to pass this tradition on to the next generation. There are colleges like um, Grove city college, Thomas Aquinas college, Hillsdale college, Thales college, uh, there, there's a lot there. There's a small number of them, but they are really good at transmitting this tradition to that next generation. Uh, I, I don't know what the next it, it's the uh, I did a history major for undergrad. And uh, the uh, the general rule of thumb for the professors then was that um, nothing is historical until 100 years have passed, because <laughs> until then, we still are too close to making kind of any kind of objective measurement. Uh, it does seem to me that we are in some sort of moment where I, I like the idea of transit that there's some sort of transitional moment between uh, whatever the new world order post World War II, post Cold War was and is, um, where it's something that is figuring out either we're going to surrender the last vestiges of human nature to uh, what Lewis called the innovators, and and they will transform society into something. Uh, unknown and something that's really inhumane. Um, uh, maybe that is our maybe that's our transhumanist future, or or we see a vast recovery of reality and common sense and realizing that uh, there are tried and true methods for finding human happiness. That, <laughs> that we don't all need to live in New York City or London. Uh, that honestly, staying in our towns and and doing good work with good people and living together in community. Uh, and and being honest and keeping our vows, these are all the things that ultimately lead to a happier life. Maybe there will be a vast recovery of that. Uh, I don't really know, but uh, time will tell. And it's an exciting, uh, it's always exciting to talk to people who are engaged in that conversation and are looking at kind of helping bring some of that recovery uh, about. Yeah, yeah, I've, I'm, I'm hopeful as well. I mean, 
there's also the hope that you know things things will go sideways in a very public way that's going to serve as a as a lesson for generations to come so hopefully that's a, that's an you know an important step in that hopefully direction so. and of course we're recording in the first week of October uh the big headlines that I've been following at least the last week have been from uh Daily Wire's Matt Walsh and the uh Vanderbilt Hospital's uh gender affirmation clinic and uh there's a his breaking of that story led to a really interesting uh, letter signed by, I think, 50, no, 75 Republican state lawmakers that they are trying to ban uh, any kind of gender transition surgery for minors in the state of Tennessee. Uh, I took that as a very encouraging sign. That would be great if, uh, and of course, today's headlines was literally, there's a uh, uh, the American Medical Association sent a letter to the Attorney General of the United States demanding that uh, reporters who are investigating hospitals and are t explaining what hospitals have said about themselves when it comes to any kind of gender affirming care, uh, th those reporters should be jailed for disinformation, which is clearly ludicrous. Rod Dreher has a piece on that today in the American Conservative, uh, but I think there's there's uh, it's 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 there there are there are, I think those are some of those moments where like the, the what's happening is so apparent. And no. the fact that we could legislatively change that, we could we could decide we as a, a community, as a state, as a nation are not engaged in mutilating the body. Uh, we, we, we could decide that. And that's a that's an exciting thing. Yeah. And this is also kind of a, a scene where you you notice that this is essentially a metaphysical war. It's it's a war on like it's two competing theologies are, are fighting it out. One that doesn't see itself that way. And one that I think would do well to bring back the concept of abomination. Like there's some things are abominations and, and you know, mutilating children is definitely one. So I think that's uh, I, talking to. Uh, really, I think talking to any parent of small children, they uh, they inherently agree. When you couch it in the language of progressive ideology, it gets so cloudy that they don't really, it's hard to see what's actually being talked about. But when you actually put it into the blunt terms of, uh, of castration or breast removal, suddenly parents are appalled, which is, again, a, a sign of uh, reality and, and some level of hope, I think. Yeah, and I think it's it's also, you know, the parents are, are confused because they themselves have this idea of, you know, the, the individual is a product of its own authenticity. It springs, you know, from nothing. You know, they've essentially been internalized this message, like, you know, you know, people to each their own and things like that. And maybe, maybe my daughter is, you know, I mean, why why can't she decide to be a man if she can decide anything else about a, any parameter of her life? Well, you know, I think if we manage on the right to disabuse people of this metaphor, of this framing of reality, it's going to be a really big step. And it's going to give people the confidence to trust their intuitions about these things because their intuitions don't come from nowhere. They're, they're put there for a reason. So I think that's, you know, that's, uh, you know, my, my small project to nudge people in this direction and hopefully, you know, think something will come of it. I love it. Uh, well, Alex, where can people find and follow your work online if they want to know more about what you're doing? 
Sure. I mean, I'm I'm on Twitter, unfortunately, for for too long every day. <laughs> uh, I'm at Kashuda, which is just my my uh, last name. Um, and uh, the Subversive Podcast, if you look, put it into Google or whatever search engine you want, it's it's there. I'm also on Substack if you'd like to get the uh, Subversive episodes early. I do some writing, but lately I haven't really been keeping up with that too much. But it's Subversive, very early, and all that type of good stuff. Um, and that's that's about it. Fantastic. Uh, well, thank you so much for coming on the show today. This has been a delightful conversation. Thank you so much, Josh. Uh, and thank you listeners for joining us today for another episode of The Optimistic Curmudgeon. My guest this episode has been Alex Kashuda, podcaster, speaker, culture critic, and author. If you want to hear more from Alex, check out her NatCon speeches linked in the show description or check out her Substack, The Garden of Earthly Delights at alexkashuda.substack.com. If you like this episode, please leave us a five-star review and share it with your friends. Until next time, seek the good, discover the true, and love the beautiful. You've been listening to another episode of The Optimistic Curmudgeon, where the best ideas win. I'm your host, Josh Herring. The Optimistic Curmudgeon is a project of Thales Press. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a five-star review and share it with your friends. You can find us on three major social media platforms. Search for The Optimistic Curmudgeon on Facebook and LinkedIn, and find us on Twitter at the handle at TheOptimisticC3. This episode was edited and produced by Madison Kay, audio engineer for The Optimistic Curmudgeon. Until next time, seek the good, pursue the true, and love the beautiful.